Thank you for listening to the Matt's Movie Reviews Podcast, available on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and Stitcher. Also, please follow Matt's Movie Reviews on Facebook, YouTube, Parlor, and Instagram. And of course, be sure to visit www.mattsmoviereviews.net for the latest reviews, top 10 lists, and more. Now, on to the show. This poor soul's journey has come to an end. From dust we started, to dust we return. Every corpse tells a story. It is our task to listen. So these are all stories about how people died. Some tales even I find too unsettling to recount. She's dead! You gotta get that body out of your apartment. Keep your doors locked tonight and keep an eye out for crazies. That's pretty cool. Yes, it is, isn't it? Hello and welcome to the Matt's Movie Reviews Podcast. I am your host, Matthew Perkovich, and this is episode number 301. Out now exclusively on Shudder is the Mortuary Collection a horror anthology that stars Clancy Brown as an eccentric mortician who tells scary tales sure to send shivers down spines and nerves on edge. Beautifully crafted and performed, the Mortuary Collection is just a movie to watch this Halloween or indeed any other night. Don't believe me? Then listen to legendary filmmaker Sam Raimi, who recently said the Mortuary Collection is a twisted tapestry of grisly fun and endlessly inventive terror. And joining me now on a Matt's Movie Reviews podcast is the writer and director of the Mortuary Collection, Ryan Spindell. Ryan, I thank you very much for your time today. And look, that Sam Raimi quote, I know you are a huge fan of Evil Dead 2. I know that was a movie that really influenced you when you were a kid to become a filmmaker. So to hear Uh him say that about your movie, it must have been just such a joy. Oh, yeah, it's surreal. Uh, I mean, even just you you reminding me of it in the intro here is... uh, feels unreal it's, it's it's really cool so the thing i really love about the mortuary collection is even though it is a horror movie and, and even though uh it can be quite grisly at times i feel that i find it really accessible and by that i mean if someone wants to say to me hey halloween's coming up what can you recommend i watch and that person could be a big time horror fan or that person could not be a big time horror fan i'll actually say the mortuary collection is a movie to watch and I was just really curious when putting together your film, was that something you really wanted to tap into? A film that all matter of horror fan, whether it be hardcore or novice, could really get into and enjoy? Uh, yes, yes. First off, uh, thank you for that intro. That was one of the best intros I've ever gotten. I appreciate it. Um, yes, that was a, a definitely a, sort of a, the intention from the very beginning. I... Uh, I had sort of a negative experience with horror, uh, with Nightmare on Elm Street in particular, when I was mm. very young. I think yeah. I saw it when I was five years old. And um, and I was sort of turned off of horror for a really long time, most of my young life. And I was always uh, an artist, and I really loved to draw and paint, and I, I wanted to be a cartoonist for most of my life. Um, so I, I sort of had this idea in my head that horror was just this kind of gratuitous uh, teenagers being chopped up in the woods by a man wearing a pig mask. And that was kind of what I thought it was. And so I, I avoided the, the genre um, at all costs. And uh, and as you mentioned earlier, it was Sam Raimi's um, 
Evil Dead 2 that I think I saw when I was probably 12 years old uh, that I, I watched a bootleg copy that my friend had on VHS. And, and I was really hesitant about watching it because I, I, of course, had avoided horror and I, I didn't want to see it. I remember the, the VHS box art from the video store and that was always scary. Um, and I remember uh, watching that movie and just being really blown away by the artistry on display. I think I, I could see Sam Raimi kind of bleeding through in every frame. And uh, and it was the first time I ever really thought about the, the creators who make the movies behind the scenes. Um, and I mean that as a compliment that I could, I could just see him, you know, I could see the edges of the sets and I could see, and I could tell that it was sort of people just kind of going hog wild and having a good time. And uh, that movie um, on top of uh, Peter Jackson's brain dead, mm-hmm. uh, which I saw about a week later, those two kind of were the one, two punch for me to sort of open my my eyes to what horror could be. Um, not what I thought it was, but sort of where the sort of fun, fantastical uh, imagination that could be sort of infused in the genre. And so, I mean, since then I've become a a, uh, a fan of all subgenres of horror, but I've always been drawn to um, the artist, the, the artistry and, and the artists, the auteur artists who really sort of get into the world building and the sort of magic and the fun and the fantasy of it all. Um, so I think when it came to making my first film, I really wanted to lean into that aspect uh, of it because that's what I love the most. The beginnings of the Mortuary Collection kind of begin with a short film you did back in 2015, which was The Babysitter Murders. I'm really, uh, I, I wanted to ask about kind of like the origins of the whole thing. Did you have an anthology planned out and Babysitter Murders was part of that and you shot that separate or did Babysitter Murders happen? And then from that, you kind of framed your kind of anthology story around that short film. So I started, I wrote the whole script as a feature first um, and I I sent it around town and uh, people really liked the script, but uh, nobody would touch it with a 10 foot pole because apparently the horror or the horror anthology format doesn't, there's no real successes for people mm-hmm. to use to sort of justify spending a lot of money on it in the way that Hollywood does. And Hollywood in particular makes movies based on what the surefire bets. They're not a lot of big risk takers anymore. And so um, everybody kind of said no to the script. And I kind of sat around with some of my collaborators who I've made short films with. And I was like, well, you know, this is kind of cool. We can actually just take one piece of this of this movie and make it and show people how cool we think it can be. Uh, and so that's how we kind of came around to the babysitter murders because within the, the the script, you know, there were five stories, but the babysitter murders was the most producible. It had basically two actors in one location. Uh, yeah. So we did a little Kickstarter campaign uh, and we raised some money and we made, we made that short first. And then we kind of used that as our proof of concept to raise uh, the rest of the money to make the film. When a lot of times when I talk to filmmakers that have a short film out there first, um, the usual evolution of that is that they take that short film and that story alone is expanded into a feature. Considering the pushback against an anthology series, was there any type of pressure whatsoever to make the Babysitter Murders D feature on its own? Yeah, there was. There was a lot of pressure. I mean, even from the old, my own managers were saying, like, you know, this is a hit. Let's just take this and stretch it out. Yeah. I think... You know, it, that does make sense. Uh, it probably would have made sense logistically for sure and, and maybe even financially. Um, but I think uh, just as a creative, I, I always have a hard time. I, I'm a, I'm a adamant fan of the short format. And I, when, I, when I write my shorts, I really put a lot of time and energy into trying to make them 
sort of full, robust three-act stories mm. within sort of, you know, a contained runtime. So for me to take something that I'd already put so much work into, you know, crafting as a whole story and then try to expand it out, it just, it felt like a recipe for uh, a bad movie. It, it felt like a recipe for um, the same movie with a bunch of sort of filler scenes kind of crammed in to like pad out the runtime. Yeah. Um, and that sort of goes right back to what a complaint I have about a lot of modern horror, which I think that, um, you know, there's some really wonderful, fantastic films that have come out in the past few years. But I do think a lot of the mainstream horror releases that you see, they kind of feel like short ideas that would have made really fantastic 20 minute uh, shorts that were then expanded out to 90 minutes and kind of crammed with a bunch of a nonsense to fill up the time. And uh, I think those are almost always pretty disappointing to audiences. Um, you know, they have, they make great trailers, but they don't really make great films. And so, uh, you know, that, that kind of brought me around full circle to what the mortuary collection is, which is like, maybe I could find a way to take these sort of short uh, horror ideas that were rattling around in my brain uh, and package them in a way that they could find a mainstream audience. One thing that a lot of people are talking about in regards to the film and really struck my eye as well, was just the look of the film, the aesthetic of it. And I think something that's really important to that is the time period that these films, uh, these short stories are set. So from what I can gather, the frame of the movie is set in the 80s, but the different segments are in different decades. So you have the 50s and 60s and 70s. When you choose those specific time periods especially, um, is there a reason why you wanted to go in the past and deal with the visuals of those decades as opposed to dealing with, say, doing a story in the 2020s or the 2000s yeah i think i think it just kind of goes back to my my love of old-fashioned storytelling and this sort of idea of when we gather around you know a campfire or when we were kids and we told stories the stories never were, were really set in any one time or place they were kind of timeless um and so when it came to sort of building a feature film that's about stories and storytellers um, I really wanted to create sort of this elevated kind of fantastical world that doesn't really exist in any one time period. So I think it, it wasn't intentional that the time uh, that each segment has like a specific time period. I think that idea has kind of come to the surface because of the the type of subgenres that we tackle and how, you know, the, the first one is sort of a monster movie. Right. And people tend to associate monster movies with the fifties. And then of course the aesthetic, you know, it's a girl in kind of a 1950s dress in a bathroom that could be any time. Mm. And so I think people have kind of connected like specific time periods to the shorts. Um, but the intention was just to make it timeless, mm. which is why there are some characters that sort of intersect uh, through all the stories. Now, I'm also hesitant about even saying that out loud because if people think that there's specific time periods and they like that, I kind of want to want to let them run with it. Yeah. Um, but but I don't think that was a conscious decision uh, when we started. I mean, there are other things too, like the second segment because it deals with sort of college kids that provided a very specific challenge for us because we were kind of going for a very like uh, 50s. 40s 50s vibe uh early on but then we realized well we need music and when it came to music that was a tricky one because music really sets uh sets things in specific time periods mm. um so we that was a quite a challenge that me and the the mondo boys the composers had in sort of creating the the type of music that would feel both timeless and of the time without sort of giving it away um and th that was also a really cool challenge when it comes to successfully developing the type of art direction that you had in your film, which I have to just repeat again, is just fantastic to look at. It really is. Um, you are 
this is an independent production that we're talking about. Um, and I imagine there'll be some frugal filmmaking happening here. When it comes to needing to achieve that, where do you make sacrifices in other departments? For example, is everyone bringing in their own sandwiches? Uh, is there catering? <laughs> is there no catering? And, and because of that, do you think putting that extra time when your actors and your crew walk into sets that look like the way they do, do you think the, sac um, the sacrifices I imagine would definitely have been worth it because all of a sudden you are the actors in the crew are transported into a different time and place and they're like, you know what, this is the it was worth me eating bologna sandwiches for the tenth time in a row to be filming in this in this set right here. <laughs> well, first off, if I made my actors bring their own sandwiches, they would eat me alive. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> um yeah, I mean, no, that's a really great point. That That is a big part of the process. We made this movie um, independently, so way, way outside the studio system with a really tiny budget. Uh, it was actually such a small budget that a lot of people in the early stages wouldn't even work for us because they said that we needed four times the, the budget we had to even pull off the movie. Um, but, you know, it, it comes from this sort of background of making short films and uh, kind of figuring out where to focus your energies so as much as possible ends up on the screen. So I have uh, a background in production design. Uh, and so I've done a lot of art in the past and I kind of know what, how to spend money in that department to really make it work. And so also being a producer, I was able to sit in those meetings early on and say, okay, look, let's take this money. We're, this isn't the kind of movie where we're going to have trailers for the actors. Let's take this money. Let's put it into art. This isn't yeah. the kind of movie where we're going to have sort of uh, the comfort, the creature comforts that sort of bigger films have. And I really pushed hard to get as much of it into sort of the art as I could. And of course, then, you know, like you said, there becomes a lot of sacrifices, right? So um, time is a big sacrifice that gets made. So, you know, there was a lot of planning, uh, very specific shots and sequences in the exact order that we were going to shoot them in the exact order they were going to be on screen. And uh, we really didn't shoot any additional coverage or um, <clears throat> or extra stuff that would sort of protect us. So we were really kind of uh, on a tightrope without a net um, in the way that we were shooting it. So it took a lot of really intense planning and a lot of very um, being very specific too, right? So sometimes you know, it looks like a nice, a beautiful, robust set that the art team built. But if you, mm. you know, you point the camera four inches to the left or four inches to the right, uh, it all falls apart. So um, it, it, it's really, it was really a daunting task. I think it's something that we've done a lot with shorts and shorts are, are, are great because, you know, you can sort of, you have the time to really focus down and you, you, you have to just achieve 20 minutes of the absolute best thing you can. And so we took that, concept and we sort of tried to translate it to a feature but what we didn't really anticipate was that when you're making five shorts simultaneously the challenge you know is five times as difficult and sort of the piecing that all together and the keeping you know all of the logistics in my brain sort of connected at the same time while tracking you know the characters and the stories and how everything was ebbing and flowing and when something would change how does that trickle down to the later in the story that became you know the biggest uh, challenge of the whole project i mentioned in the introduction that the film does star clancy brown he plays the part of an eccentric mortician terrific character named montgomery dark i mean that's just fantastic <laughs> right there um you know clancy brown 
is such a, a legendary figure. You know, he's done so much in his career in all types of facets of acting. He's also a very unique individual in his look, the size of him, the, just the way his face is. I mean, he's just, when it comes to writing the character of Montgomery Dark, are you writing it with a character, with an actor like that in mind uh, to cast in the role? Or when you cast um, uh, Clancy Brown, does the the look of and the tenor of Montgomery Dark sort of change a bit. Which one came before the other? I think the iconic idea of a, a creepy mortician uh, lurking in the shadows in an old house on the hill, it sort of started with that. So I didn't write it with a specific actor in mind. I wrote it with a, an idea or a, and a concept and, and, and I guess an archetype, but really, if you want to think about it, I, mm. it's not sort of all of the characters and all of the, aesthetics and everything of this movie kind of began with the things that I love from sort of classic horror and, and the things that, you know, some people can say homage, some people can say uh, it's a, um, a ripoff. Uh, for me, it's like, I, I did want to start with the foundations of the things that sort of brought me into the genre in the first place. So Montgomery just became this tall, uh, sort of gangly, uh, unusual lurch-like character, sort of wallowing alone sort of in this house and then as sort of the the film progressed and as we said okay now we have the the foundation of of the classic stuff that we love now how do we start to sort of sort of twist this into something more interesting and sort of take it in a place that we haven't quite seen before um and i i really was adamant that i wanted to have this like storyteller character this kind of crypt keeper type character yeah and i was thinking about the crypt keeper um from the tales from the crypt series and how he's such a performer when he's, uh, you know, when we show up and we go into the crypt and he's pops out of the coffin and he's got his, uh, he's got his quips and he's got his puns and he's like ready to perform. But, um, but I started thinking, you know, what happens when we leave? Like, wh what does the crypt keeper do in between telling stories? Is he lonely? Is he sad? Is he trapped there in the crypt? Sort of what's his deal? And once I started thinking about those questions, then I think the the character of Montgomery really kind of came to life and, and really the whole wraparound kind of evolved and sort of flourished from that general idea you know what how does a storyteller uh end up being the storyteller in these types of films the storyteller aspect is really interesting um the character of montgomery dark has this great monologue at a, at a funeral um where he talks about how life is a story but it's not the length of the story it's the quality of the content and it's really interesting because what are our lives but a series of moments or chapters really i mean that sure. philosophy that um, montgomery has is that something that you kind of kind of subscribe to as well when it comes to looking at life as a whole yeah absolutely uh yeah absolutely i think i think most of us storytellers uh tend to sort of look at life from that perspective but i think also there was a big part of it where, you know, it took me a long time to get this movie made. And I, I, I met with a lot of people and I had a lot of people sort of telling me that, you know, short stories weren't worth it. Short stories weren't interesting. People really didn't want to see them. And that kind of pissed me off because I'm, I'm a huge fan of the short format. And I think it's as every bit as much as valid as uh, any sort of length story. So in a way, Montgomery's uh, little eulogy at the beginning there is, is kind of a fuck you to the people who said um, that, that short stories don't matter mm. uh, in a very sort of visceral way, hopefully not trying to be too cute or meta, um, but just kind of saying the things I wanted to say out loud and using uh, Montgomery's sort of pontification as an excuse. 
speaking about how life is a series of chapters, I think the last several months or most of 2020, if you can put it down into any type of genre, it could be a, a horror show in many, in many respects <laughs> in, in real life. And um, it's really interesting. Coming up very soon is Halloween. Now, Halloween as a, as a holiday is in the US is just, it's a huge, huge thing. In Australia, mm-hmm. not so much. It hasn't really kicked into gear as much here. Year by mm-hmm. year, it kind of gets a little bigger, bit by bit, but nothing compared to what the States it means in mm-hmm. the US. Um, Ryan, what's Halloween going to be like in a COVID world? Is it going to be a series of Zoom calls and Instagram posts of different cosplay and such? Is it going to be such a thing anymore, say, the, the normal street Halloween party, or are we going to put it on hold this year? I mean, I don't think you could put Halloween on hold. I think it's, it's too strong. It's become too, too powerful for any of us to shut it down. Uh, I think there will be people who have parties and group gatherings because that is the nature of human beings. Um, I think people with any sense are going to probably celebrate uh, the holiday with every bit as much gusto, but from the safety of their homes or in sort of these small pockets. I mean, that's kind of what where we've sort of you know, transition to here is that we're not a hundred percent, you know, locked away in our houses anymore. But we found sort of these small pods that we kind of uh, we we trust that everyone is being safe, and we sort of can still spend time with people. So I know for for me, uh, me and a few of my friends rented a cabin up in the woods, and we're going to go up there, and we're going to dress in costumes, and we're going to tell ghost stories, and, and we're going to we're going to do it right. I think it's a uh, I think it's it's just yeah it's it's too powerful of a thing to to shut down even even COVID can't take it out. And uh, it's also the perfect holiday to wear a mask as well, don't you think? <laughs> Good point, touche. Um, and speaking of chapters, now do you have mortuary collection out there for people to watch? And again, I got to say to everyone, it's exclusive to Shutter. Even Australian viewers can watch Shutter now. It's been available for the last few months, which is just excellent. Um, so cool, yeah. It, it's, it's extremely cool. You have no idea how long we've been asking <laughs> for, for this. Um, what's the next chapter going to be for you, Ryan? Are you going to stick with the shorts and anthology format, or do you think the mortuary collection you've put all you can into that style of filmmaking and now you're going to move on to different styles of uh, filmmaking now? Uh, no, I mean, I if there was a way for me to continue to make shorts of this nature, I would 100% do it. The, the trickiest part is, again, finding the financing and the people that sort of see it as a valid way of, of making a profit. Um, so, and I think because this movie was such a, such a, intense uh intense journey to sort of bring to the screen i don't know if i would be diving into another sort of independent guerrilla style production like this one um i think if i do that again it'll be one movie and not five at once um but that being said i i I didn't make uh i didn't i never made shorts uh unique shorts by themselves as uh as stepping stones i always made them because i loved i loved the craft of short filmmaking and I, I, it's the same sort of uh, ethos I went into with this one. I, I made this movie because um, I love the sh- I love short stories and I love horror. And I, I'd love if this could even sort of in some small way uh, help more anthology movies find find the light of day and, and sort of that I can sort of sit down and watch them on Halloween as well and sort of enjoy the spooky, creepy fun of it. Uh, that would be a huge uh, that would be a huge win for me. So yeah, so I moving forward. I mean. Um, there's been a lot of people asking me if there's going to be more of the mortuary collection. And I can say 
that I have many, many more stories. There are many more creatures and uh, baddies lurking in the shadows of Raven's End. So if uh, if people like this movie and if we find enough success, maybe that's, that's something that'll happen. And if not, uh, I've got another script that I'm just finishing now that I'm in love with and, uh, and, and a few more TV things in the works. So uh, I don't think we've seen the last of uh, Raven's End, whether it be in the form of Raven's End specifically or, or some other some other type of uh, project that still kind of exists in the same plane. So for everyone out there listening, the Mortuary Collection available now on Shudder. You can go to www.shudder.com. Um, it is one of my favourite hor- horror movies of 2020. I'm actually compiling a list of my top 10 um, horror movies of 2020, and the Mortuary Collection is right up there. And I recommend oh. everyone to watch it, whether it be a fan, <laughs> a horror novice, in between or outside the realm. Check this film out. It is fantastic. And Ryan Spindell, congratulations to you. Uh, I know that you've worked so long and so hard on this movie. It's out there for people to watch, and I can't recommend it enough, and I thank you for your time today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Yes, please check out the film. I think it's best viewed with friends if you can bring get a group together and sort of do a Halloween-style party safely, obviously. Uh, that's the way to do it. And um, and I also think it's a movie that sort of rewards multiple viewings for the, yes. the real hardcore fans that want to check it, look a little bit deeper because there's there's a lot going on in, in Raven's End that's it's tough to pick up on the first watch. Yes, well, I've seen it twice, so I can really recommend that as well. <laughs> <laughs> once awesome. again, Ryan Spindola, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you so much. Have a great one.